If you've got a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 5. If you're a visitor, Luke um, is in the New Testament. And um, the words that I'm going to speak from will come up on the screen, so don't worry if you don't have a Bible. Um, the book of Luke is one of four books in the New Testament which are written accounts um, written by either eyewitnesses or people very close to them who carefully researched the facts of what happened during uh, Jesus' ministry on earth and his death on the cross. So we're going to look at some verses from Luke chapter 5 this morning. And um, if you were around the last couple of times when I, when I preached, we were looking at what it means to be a mission-shaped church. And we looked at the contrast between Jesus, who represented the culture of the Godhead, and some elements of the religious establishment of his day. And we saw there was quite a contrast between uh, those two expressions or cultures, if you like. We looked at Jesus and how he modelled for us a mission-shaped lifestyle, which was driven by a deep, deep compassion for those in need, and which gave quality time to intentionally engaging with people who did not yet understand who he was or what his message was about and had not responded to him. And I was encouraging us to think of ways in which we can increasingly be that kind of people in our own individual lives, but corporately as a church, what it means for us to enter into this wonderful uh, you know, promise that God's spoken over us and calling that's over us corporately that we'd be a, an Antioch-style church in this region, regions beyond and to the ends of the earth. And so we touched at some of the realities that we find in the Gospels that Jesus' life wasn't lived hidden away in some religious subculture. He lived out his life among ordinary people and his message was spoken to ordinary people and he engaged with ordinary people. He intentionally embedded himself amongst the needy of his day and his society so that he might be a bridge for God's good news to travel over into those lives. And to be a mission-shaped church is to do exactly that in our day, in modern Britain, and in our culture and society, that we intentionally embed ourselves among society so that we might be bridges for the good news of God and the power of his kingdom to travel over and bring change and transformation into lives. That's what we were looking at. And I want to really uh, continue that theme by looking uh, this morning and in the next couple of preaches probably that I do as well at some of the one-on-one encounters where this happened during Jesus' ministry. The Gospels, these records of Jesus' ministry and his death on the cross, are full of examples of Jesus engaging in one-on-one encounters with ordinary men and women, actually many of whom were on the very margins of society, and of how that engaging and that encounter between Jesus and individuals brought incredible change and transformation in their lives. In many ways, the courses of their lives were forever changed. You see, the reality is that this broad mission that God has, and that Jesus engaged in, and that we ourselves in our day and in our generation are caught up in, 
in the city of Winchester and beyond, this broad vision of making disciples of all nations actually is worked out usually through simple one-on-one encounters with individual, ordinary people as we go about our daily lives. The mission of God is worked out in that way. It's not simply worked out here on Sunday mornings and in our small groups during the week. It's worked out day after day after day as we have opportunity out there in the world to be bridges for the good news of God's kingdom to come into the lives of others. And so I want us to look at one encounter this morning, and that's the encounter of Jesus and Levi. He's sometimes in other Gospels called Matthew. The tax collector. And I want us to be encouraged as we consider, first of all, what God's done in our lives as he's reached out to us. But also challenged and equipped to follow Jesus' pattern and put into practice what we see modelled in Jesus in his mission-shaped lifestyle. So that we can see people in our own lives and in our own circles affected with, with God's good news. So we're going to look at the encounter with Matt the Taxman, as I called him. The setting here, just before I read the verses, is that Jesus is in Capernaum, which is his hometown. It's a small town beside Lake Galilee. It was the focus of much of Jesus' early ministry. And Jesus has, at the age of 30, begun to teach the good news of God's kingdom in that region. He's begun to call people to respond to that message by turning their back on their sinful patterns of living and follow him in a personal way. Along with teaching, Jesus has been doing many miracles and he has begun to call a few fishermen to join him and be involved in that mission and to be trained by him. And we pick up the story as Jesus is here at Capernaum in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. So I'm going to read some, some verses that, will, that are up on the screen behind you. Okay, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a number of things we can learn through this lovely little account of Jesus and this um, simple tax collector as he sits at his counter by the side of the road collecting tax. First thing that we can see here is that Jesus seeks people out. You see, this encounter is entirely initiated by Jesus. Matthew for all intents and purposes, was just going about his daily working life collecting taxes. Minding his own business when he hears a voice say two simple words, follow me. 
And the whole course of his life was changed forever. But the whole deal was initiated by Jesus. You see, Matthew hadn't applied for a job as one of the disciples of Jesus. He hadn't approached Jesus and sent off his CV. Jesus called him. He hadn't been knocking on Jesus' door for an opportunity to follow him. Jesus came knocking on his door. He took initiative. And Matthew's decision to up and follow was a decision that was made in response to that initiative of Jesus. In Luke 15, we read of how Jesus responds to, again, the complaint of some religious elements of his day that these, uh, you know, these lowlifes, these elements of society, tax collectors and sinners were gathering to him. And Jesus responds with three parables, uh, stories, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son. And those stories express, among other things, that Jesus' entire role and mission is to seek and save that which is lost. He has taken initiative to come and to engage in this mission. And that's the way it works. That's who God is. He is the one who initiates. The Bible describes us as sheep. It says we're each just wandering around on our own way, pursuing our own agenda with our own ambitions. We're not looking for God. We're looking out for ourselves. That's exactly what Matthew was doing here. He was counting his money at the counter. He wasn't interested in Jesus. He wasn't interested in religion. He was going about his daily life. And then Jesus came to him and knocked on his door and said, Matthew, it's time to follow me. There was an initiative that Jesus himself took. Matthew hadn't been planning from childhood to be a preacher of the gospel. And yet Jesus sought him out, called him, and led him into a life of discipleship and following him. He was just an ordinary bloke, preoccupied, it seems, with making as much money as he possibly could during his life. He was even prepared to take on the stigma of being a tax collector in order to pursue his one single agenda in life, which was to make cash. But God had other plans for Matthew. And we now have in our Bibles one of the longest, the longest gospel, one of the first gospels written, which was written by this tax collector, Matthew. You see, God has wonderful plans for each of our lives. Jesus turns up and says these two simple words, follow me. And the course of our lives is radically changed forever. Now, you may be a visitor here this morning, and you may get the impression that we are all unusually religious here. You may conclude that we've all been raised in good Christian homes, that from childhood we've been taught about the Bible and we've understood God, that we've lived good, moral, upright lives. But that's not the case. You see, the reality is that we were all like Matthew. 
Just ordinary people going about our ordinary daily lives with our own agendas and with our own plans. But there came a day for each and every one of us who's believed in Jesus when he came knocking on the door of our lives and said, follow me, you follow me, follow me. And just as Matthew was changed, we've been changed. But God took the initiative. We've been radically changed. The Bible calls that being born again. That's how radical the change is when Jesus comes knocking at the door of our lives. It's like a whole new life begins. Jesus takes the initiative. And we this morning are all from that kind of background. And I know as we look back, each of us on our lives, we can recognize actually, can't we, that there were moments when God was pursuing us. It may have been in childhood, it may have been in our teenage years, maybe we had an invite to this or to that, or a crisis in life, and at that moment we began to hear about Jesus. God seeks people out. How about you at this time in your life? Have you heard someone knocking at your door? You may be minding your own business like Matthew. You may have been just pursuing your own agenda. And yet you're beginning to hear something. Two simple words. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Let me encourage you to respond to Jesus as he reaches out into your life. But for those of us who have responded to Jesus, I want to encourage us to be challenged by what Jesus models here. This, as I've said, is all taking place in Jesus' hometown. It was familiar territory. And it's very likely that Jesus had passed by Matthew's tax booth a hundred times. He was a familiar character within society. He knew that this guy was caught up with making money. He knew that he'd been shunned by the rest of society. And yet on this occasion, Jesus knows God's time has come. And so he takes a step of initiative and invites him into a life of following him. Calls him to follow him. I want to encourage us to be open increasingly in these days to these kind of initiatives in our lives. It may be that there are people that you walk past every day of your life. It may be that there are individuals that sit opposite you on the railway carriage on your daily commute. Maybe the lady who takes your cash at the cash till at the local supermarket. I want to encourage you and I want to encourage myself to be available and ready increasingly to take these kind of initiatives. That's what it means to be a mission-shaped people. It means that we take initiative and are intentionally engaging with the unchurched in that way. Dave spoke last week of this river of God from Ezekiel 47. It's a, I thought it was a wonderful picture of God's spirit and God's people flowing out into the salty, stagnant, death of the world out there and how as that happens and as those two bodies of water meet the life of God begins to grow well the river has to meet the sea in the gospels the river meets the sea often in these one on one encounters if the river is dammed in 
and, and, and barriers are built and there is a separation, a wall between the church and the world, the river will never meet the sea and guess what? There will never be life. If the river just flows around and around in circles, there will never be life. If the river meanders all over the place and never actually gets to the point at which it engages with the sea, then there's no life. Life happens through one-on-one encounters with those who do not yet know Jesus. And guess what? We're the ones who carry the river. We've got a wonderful prophetic picture over us that was given in 97 of the river of God flowing out from this place to touch our city and our region and the nations. We're going to be praying into it tonight at Encounter as we pray for revival. But it struck me as I've been reflecting on this the last week or two that actually the river does not flow independently of the people of God. It's easy to pray into these things and think of these things as if it's something God's doing separate and independent from us and our responsibility. The reality is, however, that the river does not flow independently of God's people. God gives the Spirit to us. It is out from within us that the rivers of living water flow. Revival involves us as channels of that river. It's not going to happen out there while we stay in here. The river flows through the people of God. It happens as we receive afresh from God. And I believe in these days, we've got opportunities to receive afresh. There's a fresh sense of God pouring out His Spirit in these days. But as we receive afresh from God, the river meets the sea as we get out amongst the world and as we engage often in one-on-one encounters with individuals who need to hear about Jesus and the good news that he brings. It's the river that flows out and not the sea that flows in. Mission is not putting up signs and opening doors and waiting for the world to come into our buildings. Mission is about us going out into the world and intentionally engaging with those who have not yet encountered this life-giving Jesus. It involves initiative, as it did for Jesus here. We're going to be hearing in coming months an awful lot about Just Ten. Just Ten is a ten-week mission that we're going to be fully involved in, along with other churches in our city, that begins on April the 22nd next year. I had a great opportunity this last week to go to Newcastle, and they are running a regional Just Ten mission up there. There are two big top tents, each holding up to 6,000 people, and we were in the tent in, Stockton, in, in Gateshead in the, towards the north of the city, and uh, it was thrilling to be up there. I've, I've never seen anything like it in terms of large-scale gospel proclamation in a way that is completely relevant and accessible to people within our culture in these days. There were about 4,500 people gathered on that Tuesday evening. And most of them were in the tent by before 7 o'clock, even though the meeting didn't start till 7.30. And I was chatting to a few folk next to me and saying, 
it's not even seven o'clock yet. How come everybody's here already? They said, look, we, ju- we, we just want to get here. We want to get near the front. We don't want to get caught up in the traffic on the dual carriageways. The first night they opened this mission, they had a three-mile tailback either way on the dual carriageway at the exit where the big top was situated. And J. John preached the, the gospel, spoke about God's uh, principles of rest in Scripture, and about 150 people responded by coming forward. It's a fantastic event. Now, that is coming here to Winchester in 10 months' time. And it's a fantastic opportunity for us to see our city and region impacted with the good news of what Jesus has done in our own lives. It is effective, it is anointed, and I am absolutely confident that as we pray and as J. John shares these messages based on the Ten Commandments, we will see large numbers of people responding to what he shares. I'm absolutely confident the man's anointed, God is with him and on it, it is relevant and accessible, it works, the gospel works. But the success of what we do in 10 months' time, I believe, depends primarily on one thing. It depends on this. It depends on how many friends you have among the unchurched by the time J. John lands and begins his mission on April the 22nd, 2009. I've got no doubt in my mind at all that God will own the gospel and many will be saved. But ultimately, the success of the event will depend, not on J. John and his anointing, but on how many unchurched people and friends who do not yet know the life of Jesus in their life we're able to get into the venues that are going to be opened up during that 10-week mission. And so I want to encourage us And we will be in the coming months to look at ways through which we could increasingly become intentional in terms of reaching out and engaging with and building relationship with these dear folk that have not yet heard the good news of what Jesus has done for them. That involves what it involved here. It involves initiative. For many of us, it will involve new initiatives. It may be joining some kind of club. It may be going to a local Tots and Tinies group. It may be volunteer work for a local organization. It may be getting involved in some of the things that we are running as a church that interface with the world out there. We run every Friday the cafe here at the center of town. And from July onwards, we're going to be extending the opening of that to uh, extend from 10.30 till 2 p.m. The reason for that is so that there's an opportunity for workers in our city to come in with their sandwiches and enjoy a lovely cup of coffee or tea in a friendly, warm atmosphere and for us to have opportunities just for building bridges with our city. I want to encourage you, if you're a worker in the city, to set aside Friday lunchtimes to invite colleagues along into this place. We're open at 10.30. We'll be open from July onwards till 2 o'clock for coffee and friendship. It may be the art cafe, it may be the farmer's market teams who are out there this morning, it may be the healing on the streets teams that will be out week by week from next Saturday on our city. 
The opportunities actually are endless. What matters is that each of us are being deliberately intentional about this and we are taking initiative as Jesus here models for us in his reaching out to this man, Matthew, who was just minding his own business and going about his daily life. I believe in our city there are many Matthews out there. Many ordinary people who are not even interested, actually, at the moment. And yet God is going to come knocking on their door in the next ten months. And they're going to be amongst those hundreds of people that are going to be responding to the gospel from next April onwards. Let's be ready to take initiative. Second thing is, Jesus meets people where they're at. I love this. This encounter doesn't happen in the synagogue It happens on the street. It doesn't happen in a religious meeting on a religious day. But it happens in the course of a normal working week out there on the streets. Now Jesus did preach in the synagogues, which is where the Jews of the time would have their religious meetings. But as far as we know, Matthew had never come to the synagogue. In fact, it's extremely unlikely that he would have gone anywhere near a synagogue. He was a tax collector. He was ostracized by society. He was an outcast. He would not have been very welcome in the synagogue of his day. He was considered as a traitor and a crook by the religious establishment. And so in all probability would have been refused entry. So what does Jesus do? Jesus meets him Right where he's at. Sitting with his piles of money at his tax collector's counter. At his place of work by the side of the road in Capernaum. You see, not only does Jesus take the initiative in our lives, but he meets us where we're at, doesn't he? As we look at some of the key encounters in the Gospels, and we'll be looking at some of them Between Jesus and those who are spiritually lost, we find again and again that those counters don't always happen in the context of religious meetings, but in ordinary and familiar places. Here it's a tax man in the Inland Revenue Office. On another occasion, it's a promiscuous woman next to the bottled water at Sainsbury's. That's the woman of Samaria. On another occasion, it's an absolute head case on a beach. That's the Gadarene demoniac. On another occasion, it's a crook who's climbed up a lamppost to catch the latest action. That's Zacchaeus. On each of these occasions that we will look at, we discover Jesus meeting people on neutral and familiar ground right where they are at. And that's where much of his ministry happened. That's where he engaged with people. That's where he spent time with them. That's where he loved them. That's where he demonstrated a life that was radically different. And so whilst the Pharisees retreated into their synagogues and occupied themselves with in-house things, Jesus was down the pub, drinking and making friends with sinners. He was laughing. Telling stories about God. He wasn't getting drunk and falling about. 
Neither was he talking some strange religious language that no one could understand. He was identifying with those he had come to save right where they were at. He was radically, radically different. And yet he was not separate in some kind of relational, social sense. He was fully engaged and fully involved. He intentionally embedded himself in the world and amongst the lost. He wasn't born in a cathedral, but in a garage behind a pub. And he didn't retreat into some kind of exclusive religious community, but he lived out his life in the real world. That's the missional nature of God. He intentionally reaches us where we're at. He met me where I was at. I was in a bedsit, a street down from here, spending my mornings in some kind of weird meditation. Just began to use the name of Jesus. And he met me where I was at. That's each of our stories, isn't it? He meets us where we're at. He's a God who goes out. He's a God who rubs shoulders. He's a God who engages with people on their ground. He's a God who embeds himself among those who are spiritually lost. He does not wait for them to come to him. He goes out to them. And through the Gospels, Jesus reveals this God, who doesn't just put up a sign saying, this way to heaven, but a God who leaves the familiarity of heaven and steps into our world in a very real and graphic way. A God who gets into the river Jordan of repentance along with the crooks and the sex workers. A God who identifies with the immoral who have made a mess of life. A God who eats pizza and has a pint with the dropouts. A God who is arrested on false charges and is nailed to a cross and hoisted up in shame between two crommen common criminals. This is the missional nature of God. If you don't yet know Jesus personally for yourself, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a religious person. I don't understand what the deal is here. It's all a bit strange to me. It really doesn't matter. Jesus wants to meet you right where you're at. He wants to meet you this morning. He's been knocking on your door. And I want to encourage you to open the door of your life to him. The message of the Bible is that Jesus has left the comfort of heaven to reach out to you right where you're at. And all you need to do is respond to his invitation. But for those of us who do know Jesus and have opened the door of our hearts, our commission is to do exactly what Jesus himself did. To intentionally engage with people right where they're at. To meet with and relate with people that do not know God, not on our turf, but on their turf. That's mission. That's the nature of God. That's to be the nature of the church. I don't know if you know about centrifugal and centripetal forces. I'm going to give a bit of a physics test here. But if you swing an object around 
on the, piece of a, on the end of a rope or a piece of string like I'm doing now, there are two types of forces at work. There's a force that is pulling the object towards the center. Can anyone guess which one that is or what that's called? It's called centripetal force. And there's another different kind of force which is called centrifugal, which is an outward force that is pulling the object outward all the time as it spins around its center. In the Old Testament, God's people were called primarily to be a centripetal people. Their responsibility was to abide by God's law and to be a distinctive people and that through that God would bring in nations to them. They were to draw in nations. And so the cry of the people of God in the Old Testament was, come with us, we will do you good. And as those of other cultures were wanting to join them, they were accepted into their covenant community. They were a centripetal people and their identity and their foundation was that kind of foundation. But the new covenant people of God are very different. Jesus laid a foundation that was quite different to that. Our responsibility under the new covenant is not simply to be a distinctive people and wait for God to draw people to us. Our responsibility is to be centrifugal. And the Spirit of God, as as he comes again and again on us, is constantly wanting to pull us out there into the world, into society, into one-on-one encounters with those that don't yet know him. Our identity is to be clearly centrifugal. That's what it means to be a mission-shaped people and to live mission-shaped lives. It means that our orientation is constantly outward-looking. We're on a mission. We're called to go and to engage. And so the cry of the New Testament is not simply, come with us, it is go and make disciples of all nations. Well, Jesus here is modeling that kind of centrifugal mission. He meets Matthew right where he's at, and we're called to meet people right where they are at. So we're called to take initiative. Jesus takes initiative. We're called to meet people where they're at, just as God in Christ has met each one of us right where we were at. Thirdly, we find Jesus befriends people in spite of their sin. As the account unfolds, we find that Jesus joins Matthew for a bit of a knees up. Matthew's excited about what's happened in his life and he lays on a feast and holds a party. And there's a real crowd of people there. It's not a formal occasion. The Bible says they were reclining at table with them, which is... A polite way of saying they were chilling out together. They were chatting, having a drink, enjoying themselves. Neither was this a respectable gathering. Matthew's account describes this group as tax collectors and sinners. Now it may be odd for us to think of those two groups together. But in in Jesus' society they were grouped together. Jesus' 
uh, society was very despising and disparaging of tax collectors. Now, I know we're a little bit resentful at times of the tax man, and that comes through in our humour. I don't know if you heard the account of a child who once swallowed a coin and got it stuck in his throat. And his mother panicked and ran out into the street yelling for help. A man was passing by and responded to her cry and came in and shook the boy by his shoulders, slapped him on the back a few times until he coughed up the coin. And the woman turned to him and said, thank you, doctor. And he turned to her and said, I'm not a doctor, I'm from the Inland Revenue. We do have a bit of a resentment, even in our day, towards taxmen. Well, in Jesus' society, it was acute. They were alongside sinners. Israel was an occupied land, and the Roman government had imposed tax on the people. And so those that worked and colluded with the Roman government were really traitors to society. And so Matthew here gathers what, for all intents and purposes, is like a criminal underworld gathering. A few crooks, perhaps. Crooked tax collectors, along with other seedy elements of society, possibly including among them sex workers. What a crowd. And who's at the middle of it all? Jesus. That's where he is. Chilling out. And as far as we can tell, enjoying himself. And the religious folk are outraged. In fact, the term friend of sinners was not a compliment that was given by Jesus' disciples. It was an insult that was given by religious people in his day. Who is this man? What's he doing? He's so worldly. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a friend of sinners. It was an insult. And Jesus does not in any way apologize or excuse his behavior. It hasn't happened accidentally. It is intentional. He turns to them and he says, look, those who are well don't need a doctor. I've come for the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus here is not backsliding. He's here with a clear purpose. And he lived with an awareness that he was called to reach these kinds of people. That's the reason why he was anointed by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus at the outset of his mission reads these words from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This was entirely intentional. He was there with a clear purpose He was working out that commission in the context of Matthew's house. And with great compassion, Jesus was able to see right through the dysfunction of these individual lives to the lost, needy 
people that they were at the core of their being. He could see their unloved hearts. He was moved by their rejection. And he was among them as a doctor. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Setting at liberty those who were oppressed. And so his intentional decision to befriend and love them flowed out from that sense of mission and was marked by that compassion. And so it seems he was prepared to put up with the bad language and the smutty jokes. He became a friend of sinners. He didn't compromise his own holiness and yet somehow sinners felt drawn to him. He wasn't all poker-faced and pious. He was fun to be with. Being a Christian is about responding to Jesus as he reaches out to us in friendship. And Jesus doesn't demand that you get your life totally sorted before he will come to you and meet with you. Doesn't demand that you understand everything before you experience his friendship and power in your life. Romans 5 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's a major difference between the message of Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion is about men and women trying to find a lost God out there somewhere. Christianity is about God seeking and saving lost men and women. It's a message of grace. And whilst that friendship transforms us from the inside out and frees us from sin, God extends that friendship and grace to you in spite of your sin. That's the outrageous nature of God's grace. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you know there are issues in your life, and you're thinking, well, just get that sorted out and then I will respond to this Jesus. I want to encourage you to open your heart to him right where you're at. He's not phased by that. He wants to change you. He will change you through his grace and through his love. But he's not waiting for you to somehow get your life all in order before you can open the door to him. He wants to meet you right where you're at and in spite of your sin. The challenge for us finally then is to do exactly that ourselves. To befriend people in spite of their sin. To be gripped as Jesus with, with a sense of mission and purpose to bring healing and salvation and to be so gripped that we are prepared to enter into their world and make a few friends for the sake of God and his kingdom. Paul was like that. He said, I've become all things to all men, just so that by any means possible, I might just save some. Let me encourage us to be like that. The fourth thing that I'm just going to mention as we end is that Jesus does call people to major life change. But I want to appeal to us now as we bring things to an end. How about you? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, can you recognize him at work in your life, just as he was in Matthew's life? Have you begun to experience something of his grace? You might not be in the slightest bit religious. You may even be rather like Matthew, minding your own business, pursuing your own agenda. Well, there are two words Jesus wants you to hear this morning. Follow me. Follow me. 
Can we just close our eyes together? I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, in this moment, you feel God is speaking to you in this respect. I'm not going to um, embarrass you by getting you out the front or anything like that. But if you're here, I just want to encourage you to put your hand quickly in the air. Just as an acknowledgement, yeah, I sense God just knocking at the door of my heart. And I want to open up my heart to him. I want to invite him into my life. Just whilst our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning who wants to do that? You want to respond? It doesn't have to happen right here and now, but you just want to acknowledge that Jesus is inviting you to follow him. Let me encourage us as well who know Jesus. Let's be challenged and motivated by this. Let's be those who are intentionally taking initiatives to meet people right where they're at and to make friends with those who don't know him. And as we do that, let's expect God to work through us and in time bring major change into their lives.